Today's scripture reading is from John 2, 1 through 11. Please read with me the verses in bold. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. So we'll begin our series on encounters with Jesus at a wedding and uh, with an encounter that Jesus has with his own mother. One of the privileges or uh, curses, depending on the situation, of being the officiant at a wedding is that you get the inside scoop. You get a behind-the-scenes look at uh, what's going on and what's going into this event. You get a look at the families and the venue and all of uh, sometimes the dirt. I've had the opportunity to wait with the groom and the groomsmen in a walk-in freezer uh, on a 110-degree day for our chance to go out for a wedding. I've helped uh, pose, I've helped post uh, secret security guards at a wedding to help enforce a restraining order. I've been uh, a last minute stand-in for a preacher who rushed away for a family emergency. I've been a last, in, I've been a last minute understudy for a preacher who died. A wedding, by definition, is a major transition for at least three families. The family of the groom, the family of the bride, and the new family that is being formed, in fact, does not exist until the moment when a husband and wife say, I do. And every uh, family prepares or doesn't prepare in different ways for this to happen. 
And lots of times, these are the dynamics that are uh, gurgling underneath the surface of a wedding. Sometimes it is the most beautiful thing to see as two families come together, and sometimes that's the most catastrophic part of what's happening uh, behind the curtains in the drama of a wedding. During one wedding rehearsal that I was leading, the day before the wedding, we're walking through the process uh, for the next day, the bride had just finished practicing her procession. She'd come into the room, and we'd reached that part of the traditional marriage service where I, as the officiant, would ask, who gives this woman to be married to this bride? I mean, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And before the bride and her father, who had escorted her in, could answer or respond, an angry member of the entourage in the room blurted out, Oh, we're not doing that, I hope. The giving of a bride is a sexist act left over from a time when women were treated like property and exchanged between father and groom. Now, I'm not sure that this individual is entirely wrong, um, and I'm not and wasn't on that day interested in proliferating a sexist tradition. But I have always felt like this exchange is an incredibly important moment in a wedding. A moment in which the family of the bride, and particularly her father, who presumably has been the first man in her life, are asked to acknowledge in front of God and family that uh, she is now entering a new family. She's going to have new priorities. She's going to have a new dependence on someone else. She is, in this moment, they are all agreeing that there's going to be a new allegiance. Uh, she's not, as it were, they're kind of saying publicly to, to this family, she's not your little girl anymore. And I've often joked semi-seriously that I think that the solution to the aforementioned issue is not to remove the giving of the bride from the wedding ceremony, but rather to add a moment when the mother of the groom is asked, who gives this boy <laughs> to be married to this woman? Uh, how much family conflict could be addressed in that ceremonial moment, right? If a future mother-in-law was reminded ceremonially that this is not your little boy anymore. That's what I almost named this sermon. This is not your little boy anymore. Because in lots of ways, that's the dynamic of the exchange between Jesus and his mother at this wedding. And so I want to examine the passage this morning in three parts. What Jesus said, what Jesus did, and what it meant in this encounter between Jesus' mother and Jesus at a wedding in Canaan. What Jesus said. It's a small town wedding. Uh, it's actually a small town wedding on a Wednesday. It says on the third day, 
was a wedding in Cana. And it seems like Jesus' mother, Mary, has some sort of connection. She's got something to do behind the scenes. She's got responsibility somehow, uh, either officially, formally, or unofficially for the celebration. The text says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana, and the mother of Jesus was there, as, as if she was already there, as opposed to arriving as a guest, the way that it sounds that Jesus and his disciples did. It says in verse 2 that Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So Mary was there, and Jesus arrived with his disciples. And Mary, at least, whatever her, you know, her responsibility or capacity is at this wedding, she's at least in the know about what's going on behind the scenes. She knows what's bubbling up uh, outside of the sight of uh, the public. And she knows that a major social disaster is brewing. And she comes to Jesus and says, uh, in verse 3 it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, what Jesus says back to her is actually the first point, but I think it's important that we understand a few things about a first century Jewish wedding celebration before we hear what Jesus said. We don't actually know much about their ceremony. We don't know who would have officiated the ceremony or what would have gone into it, what kind of vows they would have taken, or if there was a moment like a giving of the bride or a walk-in freezer to wait in. But we do know that the groom was responsible for financing the celebration that would follow the ceremony and that that celebration could last for days. Some historians believe that a Wednesday wedding is an indication that this is a first marriage and not a second marriage of a widow or a widower, that this is a young man and a young woman uh, getting married. And so uh, it's a longer celebration. A Wednesday wedding may have uh, been a plan to get married on Wednesday and party all the way through the weekend or longer. And uh, potentially that means there is a younger and when you say younger, we all hear poorer groom who's responsible for picking up the tab. We also know that there was an expectation in Jewish culture of reciprocity around a wedding. Uh, for you to leave your farm or your vocation to celebrate for multiple days was an expensive endeavor. You were giving up your income to go do this thing. And so... It was uh, three days in which uh, whoever had invited you was responsible for providing for you, not just dance and drink, but also everything that you needed, lodging and whatnot. And so it was therefore expected that if you invited a neighbor to your wedding or your family wedding and fed them for three days, that at a future date, they, when they or one of their children was getting married, uh, that you'd be paid back, that you'd get a similar invitation to a similar celebration. It's even believed that a failure to do so could result in a lawsuit for neglecting to pay a debt. So there's potentially a lot on the line for a young groom who seems to be maybe a friend of the family of Mary and Jesus. We also get the impression that Joseph... Mary's husband, uh, who you'll remember from nativity scenes not too many weeks ago, 
Mary's husband's not on the scene. While there is mention of Mary and even younger siblings, half-brothers and sisters of Jesus, uh, throughout, sporadically throughout the Gospels, Joseph never appears in the Gospels again after the account of the boy Jesus at 12 years old in the temple in Jerusalem. Has Joseph died? Well, we don't know. But the impression is that Jesus, now a young adult, pushing 30, may be operating in that strange place that a first child does for a single parent, both mama's boy and a provider on some level, if not just emotionally, then maybe financially as well. All of these are the dynamics that are swirling around and uh, in this moment when this exchange, this encounter takes place between the mother of Jesus and her son. And when Mary says to him, they have no wine. It looks like a statement, right? She's just telling him, they have no wine. But it's loaded. (laughs) The loaded statement. And Jesus responds, here's what he says. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, the expression that Jesus uses in the Greek is hard to translate. Um, And while the way that it's translated here kind of comes, it's probably not as condescending as it comes off here, woman. Uh, Jesus is, however, not addressing his mother in an endearing or familiar way. He is courteous, but more formal than you would expect. It's almost like a southern man or a southern young man addressing his own mother by using the the term ma'am, right, ma'am? And then he's very intentional about creating distance in his priorities and Mary's agenda. The Greek phrase that he uses literally says, what to you and to me? It means something like, what do you and I have in common here? So essentially, Jesus' mother comes to him and says, they have no wine. And Jesus says, ma'am, you and I are at this wedding for different reasons. There's clearly all kinds of mixed up dynamics in Mary's approach to Jesus. What we do know is that Mary knows who Jesus is. And there's a sense that she's asking him to act because Not only is there a crisis, but also because she's his mom. And it's that dynamic, I think, that Jesus resists. Nobody, not even Mary, is entitled to Jesus. He, uh, nobody is entitled to uh, his powerful, saving help. No one has special purchase on Jesus. What we receive from him, we receive by grace alone. What anyone receives from him, they receive by his decision and not their own design. Because of who he is. Not because of who we are. Because of he's going to do what he does because of who he is, not because of who Mary is. If he decides that this will be the beginning of his public ministry, it will not be because someone else has told him to do so. Not even Mary, his own mother. This is the first takeaway, I think, in a series on encounters with Jesus. 
You will know if you have met the real Jesus by the realization that you are not in control. By the realization that you are not in control of that encounter. Throughout his ministry, people subtly and not so subtly tried to control and manipulate Jesus and what he did and who he talked to and where he went. His disciples thought they knew better what, the, what they should do. A rich young ruler and others liked him, tried to get Jesus to validate them. Uh, people wanted him to go here. Other people wanted him to stay away from there. Each one of us does this. We do this too. Every time my heart says to God, if you loved me, you would dot, dot, dot. I'm trying to put Jesus in a corner. Every time my heart says, uh, don't I deserve this after all I've done? I'm prescribing. Every time I say to myself or uh, my heart says, I'll do anything for you except that. I'm dictating to Jesus what he can and what he can't do for me what I will allow and what I won't allow. The same is true if your heart is saying, he could never love me after what I've done or what has been done to me. Really? That makes Jesus pretty small. You might say that most of the time, we only want to make room in our lives, in our hearts, in our schedules for a little boy Jesus so we can tell what to do. who has to do what his mama says, right? I think Mary's response to this encounter is incredibly instructive for us. Verse 5 says, His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So Mary has, I, I mean, it seems like it's, I mean, there's a lot of awkward confrontations happening at, at weddings, right? Behind the surface, right? Did you, did you see that? Mary has just had an awkward confrontation with her son. She's been confronted somehow by Jesus for presuming on a family tie to manipulate his action. She, you might say, has received a rebuke, and her response is humble and graceful. She's not angry. She doesn't withdraw. She's not defensive. By the way, I'm just describing for you all of the different ways that I respond when somebody confronts me. Instead, Mary's response is full of faith. Look at this. She leaves this whole thing in Jesus' hands. She just says, do whatever he tells you. She hasn't prescribed to him what he must do. She doesn't know what he's going to do or if he's going to do anything, but she's trusting that what he decides to do will be good. And she commends it to the people around her. Do what he tells you. She has exchanged a sort of a posture with, of manipulation and control for a posture of expectation and wonder. Wonder what's going to happen. Do whatever he says. We'll see what happens. It seems so simple. Do whatever he tells you. But if you are encountering Jesus for the first time today or wrestling with whether or not he really is who he says he is, then this is the most radical thing in the world, to do whatever he tells you. Give him control. The only way, I, I submit to you, the only way 
to truly know Jesus is to do more than just know about him or understand an argument for him in your head. But you have to see what happens in your life when you give him control of your heart. You have to see what happens if you do what he tells you to do in that situation that you're battling to manipulate for your own good. You have to see what happens if you do what he tells you to do, even when having integrity or uh, being a, a person of your word or whatever the wrestling is, seems like the least good idea for saving face or getting out of this thing unscathed. Jesus will say later, if you love me, you'll do as I command. It's pretty risky. We're going to look at, we've looked at what Jesus said. Now let's look at what he does, but let's pause for a moment uh, with Mary because she has just, right, uh, she's just changed course. She had a plan and now she's saying, do whatever he says to do. It's a moment that reminds me a little bit of a famous quote uh, from C.S. Lewis in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe. Susan has just learned that Aslan is a lion. And she says, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says to her, who, says, who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. He's a lion. But he's good. Let's look at what Jesus does. John describes for us, it says, six stone water jars were there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Later in John, we hear the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. This is in John 13 at a celebration that's a little bit like the one that we're reading about today. Uh, but in any sort of gathering like, like this, the host would be responsible for making sure that the guests' feet were washed when they, were, when they arrived so that they were not just hygienically clean, but ceremonially clean to be allowed to be in the celebration. The same is true for their hands. Um, before, they, uh, before the feast, every guest would need to have this purification water poured over their hands. And again, it's more than just hygiene. Uh, it's good hygiene, but it was also Old Testament uh, ritual for purity. It was showing that it took a washing to be in a holy place. Uh, you couldn't come into God's presence without being cleansed. And so we're, we're looking at a wedding that's going to last three or four days in which every guest needs their feet cleaned and every hand needs to be washed before every meal. And so we're talking about a lot of water. And John describes somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of water in jars uh, set aside for this purpose. Six jars, and Jesus has them filled to the brim with water. And then it says, he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, we're not told anything else. There are other descriptions of signs that Jesus did where we, we hear some of the mechanics, right, of what he prayed or what he did. All we know here is there's no bells or whistles. There's no puffs of smoke. But somewhere in between the filling of the jars and the master of the feast tasting its contents, the scripture says the water now become wine. It's not even public. It tells us 
certainly that the master of the feast didn't even know that it was water moments ago. Only the servants knew where it had come from. The only thing we, we do know that the master of the feast says is, you have kept the good wine until now. Good. Really good. What Jesus did was more than his mother could have asked or imagined. It's more than she could have possibly had in mind when she tried to call in a favor because uh, Jesus was her son. Jesus had in mind so much more than saving a family friend from embarrassment. He had done more than save them from a major party fall. He may have even saved the groom from financial ruin, given the fact that if he failed to deliver on this banquet, he might have been the subject of lawsuits. Uh, Some commentators say that 180 gallons of good wine might actually have been enough to not only have wine enough for the wedding, but to have leftovers to sell afterwards. Maybe he even gave this new young couple a little nest egg to get started. What Jesus did was gratuitous and undeserved. What did it mean? If I'm preparing to officiate a wedding and I open up uh, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer and look for the wedding, the traditional wedding ceremony there, the welcome goes like this. Dearly beloved, we've come here together in the presence of God to witness and bless the joining together of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. The bond and covenant of marriage was established by God in creation, and our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by his presence and first miracle at a wedding in Canaan. Now, it's beautiful, and I think it's true. I also think that Jesus intended to do more in this moment than simply endorse marriage as a good way to live. When he began his public ministry at a wedding in Canaan, he had a huge vision that he was beginning to communicate. In verse 11, it says that this was the first of the signs that Jesus did. This is about more than turning water into wine. It's about more than turning a lot of water into a lot of wine. It's a sign, John says. John is very explicitly telling us that this is intended to point towards something more about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And it says that the sign is uh, to manifest his glory. Jesus intends his followers to understand. Through the Old Testament, the prophets like Isaiah Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, as well as the book of the Song of Songs. In these books, God again and again describes his desire to be united with the people that he has created. He calls it a variety of different versions of a betrothal. His people are the bride and God himself will be the bridegroom one day. 
He will come for them, and their reunion will be like a great wedding feast. This is an Old Testament theme, and this would mean that when God comes for his people, when God comes as the groom for his bride, he himself will be responsible for providing everything that is needed for the purification and the celebration and the debt that might need to be repaid for his bride. It's no mistake that Jesus instructs uh, not just any old water to be turned into wine, but that the water that's been set aside for purification, uh, that ritual that was an effort of people to try to make themselves clean so that they could be in the presence of a holy God. And Jesus says in this passage, the hour has not yet come, but it, it won't be too long before Jesus would gather with his followers at another meal and he would hold up another cup of wine and he would declare that it would be his shed blood that would wash us clean from the guilt and shame of sin. He himself would make it possible for a fallen people to be in the presence of a holy God who loved them. Jesus is not the central figure of the wedding at Cana, but he sure does make it a celebration to remember. The prophet Isaiah described the moment when God would be reunited with his people in Isaiah 25, and this is what he says. He says, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine well-refined. Throughout the scriptures leading up to this point, God has been uh, saying since deep in the Old Testament that a new age is coming when he would come to be with his people as a groom pursuing his bride. And when that hour comes, when God would be with us, it seems like through the whole Old Testament, what he's saying in one way or another is, I'm saving the best wine for last. Here I come. Jesus is not doing a favor for his mom. He's announcing who he is and what he has come to do. And it shouldn't be lost on us that he has done more at this wedding feast than transform uh, purification and usher in a celebration. It seems like he has paid an ominous debt. We can look back after finishing the Gospel of John and realize that Jesus from this point forward is constantly using this phrase and talking about the fact that his hour had not yet come. Until a moment in John 17 when he intentionally turns his attention to the cross. On the night that he was betrayed, we're told that Jesus washed his disciples' feet and then he prays a last prayer, and in both of those occurrences, he says something like this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. The Scripture says that like a poor groom on a Wednesday wedding, we are in over our heads. We already owe what we cannot pay. We have presumed on God and taken the life that he gives us and used it for ourselves and not for his glory. 
we have ignored, defied, and rebelled against God who has given us life. We have not done whatever he tells us. And so we owe him the lives that he has given us, but we cannot pay the debt and survive. But the scripture says that on that night, when Jesus gathered with his disciples, when Jesus said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son. On that night, he took bread and he broke it and he offered it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. The debt to be paid that we owe to the giver of life. And after the meal, he took a cup and giving thanks for it, he offered it to his disciples. He said, this is the cup of a new covenant. This is a new relationship with God in my shed blood, a, a new and once and for all purification of sin. He said, as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. We, we proclaim um, the celebration that God has come to be with us. We proclaim the purification that our sin is washed away by his blood. We proclaim that in his death as a substitute for us, he has paid our debt to God. This is very intentionally supposed to appear to us as a rehearsal dinner. Our groom has come for his bride. My friends, if you call Jesus Savior, then come and keep the feast. Come and celebrate that God has not left us in our sin, but come for us as our Savior and our groom. Friends, if you've come wrestling with that claim, you don't know if you're ready to land on who Jesus is, that's okay. In fact, one of the things that a wedding is meant to be, right, is a chance for people to gather and observe what, the, what is happening. And so we, we're so glad you're here. Watch and see. We'll put some prayers on the screen as others are taking communion that you can use to pray and wrestle with God and the claims of Christ. We hope that one day uh, you would make the decision to follow Jesus yourself and join us at this table.